listening to WLPN 105.5 FM Chicago, and you're listening to Labor Express Radio, Chicago's only English language labor news and current affairs radio program. News for working people by working people. I'm your host, Jeremy Lissero, and this is the Sunday, July 25th, 2021 edition of Labor Express. I want to start tonight's episode with an apology to Labor Express listeners, both on WLPN and in our podcast version. If you listen regularly, you may have noticed an absence of new episodes for about a month. This was an unscheduled and unplanned break of sorts, necessitated by a family emergency and a few other intervening events. As the host producer of Labor Express Radio since 2004 now, despite the important contributions of my team of Labor Express Radio reporters for whom I'm very grateful, the program generally does not air when the host producer becomes unavailable due to personal circumstances. This is something we will hopefully be changing in the future of this program, but for now that is unfortunately the reality. In particular, I owe an apology to the podcast listeners, as the June 25th episode covering the nurses' strike at Cook County Hospital, among other things, never made it online. I'll be rectifying that situation in the next several days. That will also include an update on both the SEIU Local 73 and National Nurses United strikes at Cook County, both of which resulted in new contracts for both unions. So check out the podcast at laborexpress.org in a few days for that. I should also mention before moving on that the struggle of Chicago nurses for decent contracts continues. National Nurses United, NNU, announced on Saturday that registered nurses at Community First Medical Center in Chicago will hold a one-day unfair labor practice strike on Monday, July 26th. Nurses will be on the strike line from 7.30 a.m. until 2 p.m. at 5645 West Addison Street in Chicago if you're interested in supporting them. We should have more on that situation on our next episode. On tonight's episode, we turn again to our friends, our fellow members of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, for updates on some important developments in the labor movement nationally this past week, ramping up of the AFL-CIO's campaign for passage of the PRO Act, and the ongoing reality of Jeff Bezos and Amazon shaping the world of work and more for all of us. Let's start with the PRO Act. We have covered extensively on this program how the PRO Act, the Protect the Right to Organize Act, could finally make long-needed reforms in our broken labor law and at least push the law significantly in the right direction in regards to protecting the rights of workers to organize. I've also raised in the past concern that the AFL-CIO's push behind the PRO Act seemed perhaps lacking. While it has picked up in recent months, there were the thousands of calls organized to pressure recalcitrant Democrats and independents like Senators Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Mark Warner of Virginia, and Angus King of Maine to get on board. That effort seemed to pay off as those three did sign on. However, the 50-vote threshold needed for passage of the act under reconciliation is still a few votes short, with Arizona Senators Kristen Sinema and Mark Kelly still resisting. So it appears that the AFL-CIO is starting to take things to the streets, with a week of action this past week in events organized around the country. Good friend of Labor Express Radio and host of the Your Rights at Work podcast, Chris Garlock, discussed the effort with Damon Silvers, AFL-CIO Director of Policy and Special Counsel, on the July 22nd episode of his program. Chris started the discussion with a reference to the other recent bit of news we're connecting to on tonight's program and a dig at space cowboy Jeff Bezos. I want to talk to you uh, about the PRO Act, but let me just, uh, I think Mike Nacella has a little nine-second clip uh, for us here that I, I want to run this by you, and I think, I think it's connected. Let me, let me see if you can make a connection for us. Go ahead, Mike. I want to thank uh, every Amazon employee and every Amazon customer 
because you guys paid for all of this. <laughs> and you know, Chris, the moment you said, I've got a nine-second clip for you, I knew it was that one. I knew that's what it was going to be. <laughs> great, great minds think alike, my friend. Great minds think alike. That's, uh, that, that's, that's our good friend Jeff Bezos, of yes, course. That's, that's, uh, richest, <laughs> richest man in the world. Uh, estimated net worth, I just looked this up, uh, $177 billion, uh, yucking it up uh, after his uh, space flight this week. I, I don't know, Damon. In my mind, that connects to ProAct, but help help me out here. I, oh, I just where, where do you even start with this stuff? I mean, look, the way we've organized our country and our labor laws, it's like you take a it's like you take the whole country and turn it on end and pour <laughs> every single value that working people create every day into that man's pocket. Right? That that is essentially the way the laws in this country work right now. And the Pro Act is about leveling it out a bit so that we get to keep more of what we what we do. Right. And Jeff Bezos gets less. I mean, it's about that simple. And the the it's not just about the pro. It's not just about the wages that Amazon pays or doesn't pay and the way in which they pretend that hundreds of thousands of people that work for them don't work for them. Right. In terms of their drivers and other things like that. But it's also about taxes, because when the labor movement is strong, the tax system is fair. And Jeff Bezos is paying a less less of a tax rate. And Amazon is paying less of a tax rate than you and Ed and I pay. And then our listeners pay. And, and, and instead, he's using money that ought to go to our schools, our healthcare system, and our infrastructure, and our country's future. He's using that to fly around in space. Which, which seems so oddly, you know, not only tone deaf, but, you know, the, the fact that he's up there flying around in space while the rest of us are down on, on, on the ground, you know, dealing with it, it, it there's something, it's beyond parody. It's beyond, it, 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 it's, it's so sort of symbolizes everything that's wrong with where we are right now, right? Yeah, well, and just remember, like, why is it that he gets to fly around in space? It's because he has so much money that he can essentially treat spaceflight as a personal toy. Right. Right, and, and you know, it, the contrast with how we used to do spaceflight, which was as a public venture, as the venture of the nation, right? To and to do things that actually had some value scientifically and otherwise, what he's what he's doing has been done thousands of times before. Low low altitude spaceflight is no big deal, has no scientific value. It's simply he's showing that he can do it. It's it's sort of a, it, it, it's an act of of grotesque narcissism. And underneath it is the fact that our economy is completely tilted backwards in, in a way that is undermining our democracy. And the PRO Act, which gives working people bargaining power, working people who have unions, people who are in unions now, and, and the 60% of the American workforce that would like to have a union, and to be part of a union, gives the PRO Act makes it possible for people to have, for ordinary people to have some bargaining power going up against people like Jeff Bezos. Well, and so this is the uh, week of action. It's a, at least the second or third that I, I can think of this year, you know, that the AFL's organized uh, events uh, around the country. We had some locally uh, yesterday. They were uh, visiting once again every Wednesday. Poor, poor, poor Ginny over in Northern Virginia and, and, and all of our, you know, our friends and colleagues over there. But every Wednesday, rain or shine, they've been over there in front of Warner's office bringing them cake uh in in a you know a sort of 
it's sort of a, a nod to the whole let them eat cake thing, I guess, but, uh, you know, to try and get Warner on, on board with this. But, uh, you know, to draw attention uh, to, the, you know, the need to get some basic, basic protections for workers around the country. Give us a sense, two things. I want to hear about some of the other things that, you know, sort of your picks for really interesting and, and strong events around the country. And then I want to get a sort of reality check on, on where we are politically on this thing. Sure. So, Chris, this is the this is the uh, Proact Week of Action, uh, and uh, what working people are doing this week is in live, in person actions at the offices of every senator, all 100 senators in every state in the country, from you know union strongholds like Maryland and California to places you wouldn't think it was possible, like Wyoming and uh, Utah uh, and Mississippi and Alabama. Every senator in-person actions by working people at their offices demanding that they pass, they bring the product to a vote and pass it. And, and you're right, there are some people who are getting particular attention. Uh, uh, Mark Warner in Virginia, uh, Kristen Sinema and, and, and uh, Mark Kelly in Arizona, uh, Senator Murkowski in Alaska. These are people who, who, who we know should be with us on the PRO Act and just aren't quite there. Uh, and, uh, and so in Arizona alone, there have been more than 50 actions during the week of action at the, at the offices of the two Arizona senators, whom working people helped elect to office uh, and who can't seem to kind of quite find their way to where they need to be. Uh, although I would say Mark Kelly's made some progress. I that's because we made him. Yeah, and I wanted, I wanted to jump on that real quick because I was just reading a couple of reports on that. And uh, Mark Kelly... I don't know if he's moving, but he, he now says he supports the quote unquote overall goals. So what, what, what de- decode that for us? And, and, and Ed Smith, of course, jump in any time. Uh, well, you know, uh, let's put it this way. We have 47 co-sponsors of the PRO Act. We need 50. Uh, we need 50 votes to pass a piece of legislation in the Senate. Right. And uh, we believe that uh, while they're having a hard time saying it clearly, we believe that both Senator Warner and Senator Kelly are yes votes. Okay. And, and we, so we think that we're at 49. Uh, and uh, we need one more vote. Uh, that, uh, I think that's where we are. And we've moved. We were at 45 in April when the, when the campaign began. Right. So now, we're, now we think we're at 49. We think we need one more vote. Uh, it's going to be a little tough. Uh, you know, uh, uh, it's going to be a fight, right? Uh, but the labor movement is no stranger to fights. Uh, uh, and you, you asked me about, about actions. I, I want to highlight just a couple of things. Like I said, sure. 50 actions or so roughly 50 actions in the course of the week of action in Arizona alone. Okay. Huge, big actions at every office of United States senators, uh, uh, in the upper peninsula of Michigan. Now that, that may seem like why there, that is, that is a, that's a, rem- a rural area. It's not where you see a lot of a lot of protests working, but it's a strong union area. And working people have come out to tell the Michigan senators, who are co-sponsors of the PRO Act, that they need to do more, that they and every other senator need to do more to make it happen, which is a critical part of this week of action, is that no one is being left untouched. The people who are co-sponsoring are being, are being thanked and asked to do more. The, the Republicans, the 40 the 49 Republicans, right, who have evidenced hostility to working people on this are being held accountable. Senator Murkowski is open-minded, I think, and we're, and we're talking to her, right? 
But so that, and, and then on the other hand, if, if on the one hand, we have actions in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. On the other hand, we had a press conference in New York City uh, on Saturday, public event uh, with both Senator Gillibrand and Senator Schumer, the majority leader, uh, with the leaders of the labor movement in New York State, lifting up the PRO Act and recommitting to moving it forward. And I, I, I think it's a nice kind of counterweight. You think about the Upper Peninsula of Michigan on the one hand, in New York City on the other, the full range of, uh, of America, and Arizona, and a, a third kind of place in America. Uh, I think that, that gives you a feel, but, but, to, but to be clear, the labor movement has been in motion in every state, all 50, and with every senator, all 100 this week. Let me uh, reintroduce you. We're talking, of course, to uh, a good friend of this show and this station and a frequent guest uh, here on Your Rights at Work, Damon Silvers. He's Director of Policy and Special Counsel at the AFL-CIO. So, Damon, before we let you go, my, my last question has to do, and I think we've talked about this before, uh, you know, in addition to never shrinking from a fight, the labor movement is, is often about being out in the streets. And obviously, during the pandemic, uh, that's been a challenge. I wanted to to note there there are at least two strikes this week that I know of. Uber and Lyft were on strike yesterday. Uh, Frito Lay workers in Kansas have been on strike for three weeks. Uh, one of their issues, by the way, is something called suicide shifts, and and they've talked about they they'd rather you know march in sweltering ninety degree temperatures on a picket line than you know drop like flies in a hundred degree. Uh, heat that's inside the the factories, but again, to me, there's a direct connection. You know, when you see people taken to the streets with 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 strikes uh, and the need for something like the Pro Act, but can can you talk about that a little bit? Well, sure. I mean, you know, working people have been having to live under you know wage suppression, not being paid, not being paid in relationship to the value they create. We create for decades. In COVID, frontline workers were then faced with basically being told in a lot of different ways that in the middle of a, of a lethal pandemic that they were expendable, including, I mean, the very people who were keeping all the rest of us alive, right? healthcare workers, grocery store workers, meat packers, people in the very kinds of places you were just talking about. A lot of people have had enough. Uh, and the question, and, and the the question is, will our democracy provide working people with a productive way of making their voices heard, making our voices heard in our economy, in their workplaces, in our society? That's what the PRO Act is. Right? And, the, and, and when working people stand up, organize, go on strike, you, you mentioned the Uber, Lyft, Frito-Lay, all that's going on. We had a big organizing drive in Maine that was key to moving Senator Angus King, right? Um, uh, there are nurses that have organized in Arizona that are going to meet with those senators in Arizona, Cinnamon Kelly, and telling them, you know, look, and, and grocery store workers, right? Two kind of paradigm frontline workers gone to them and said, hey, look, you know, when we organize, we face, we just get, you know, we get intimidated, coerced. We get coerced by our employers into not exercising our rights, right? And, you know, in some cases, the, some of the nurses have won unions despite the kind of abuse that the law allows currently of people who try to organize. Some of some grocery workers say, hey, you know, we are, are we, our, our coworkers weren't strong enough. There was too much fear, too much intimidation, right? That conversation is critical to making change and showing that the alternative is not silence, 
right? The alternative, the alternative to uh, to collective bargaining, to being able to to sit down with your employer in a fair and, and dignified way, is not silence. It's the street, right? That's absolutely critical. Well, and I guess that's my my final question to you, Damon. Is you know, are you know, like you said, there was actions across all fifty states this week. And that's been very exciting to watch and to be part of and to help lift up. We've certainly done it throughout the Labor Radio Podcast Network. But, you know, the the question that people have been asking me is, you know, is there going to be a national mobilization? And uh, I I don't want to tip any strategic things from from the top floor there at the AFL-CIO. But, I mean, that does seem like, well, and and, and honestly, you know, something like targeting the capital like we we normally would do obviously has different implications these days than it did. Now, after January 6th, the term targeting the capital. I know, I know. It's <laughs> not quite what we have in mind. Exactly. <laughs> but 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 it's a normal thing for us to put, you know, thousands of people, you know, at the U.S. Capitol, outside the Capitol, I have to say. Yes. <laughs> I I, I look, we are we are looking at a lot of options uh, that the, the thought is the thought that you're having is, is certainly crossed people's mind. Um, I think there's a couple of different things that we want to be mindful of. One of them is we are not in the business of what those people on January 6th were into. Absolutely right? not. And, and, and we don't want to get confused symbolically either. So there's that right. issue. Then secondly, there's the question of whether mass gatherings really are a good idea as the, the COVID situation develops. Right. right? We, we, the, the actions this week are relatively small scale. Uh, in, the, in each individual action is, is, is hundreds of people, not thousands or tens Absolutely. of thousands, right? And, and so the, the, the COVID issues are a little bit more manageable. Uh, I, I, we're giving thought to all of this. I, um, we have to be able to show, we have to be able to show in the coming weeks uh, how intensely working people feel about, about dignity, democracy on, on, on the job. We have to do it. And the question is how. Right. And, that, and I guess that's what I'm responding to. That's what I'm hearing from the grassroots, from the workers, that, that, that frustration that you're talking about, you know, and then we just saw we were trying to get hero pay for some of these workers here in D.C. Uh, and, and, and we're dealing with the same kinds of questions because the D.C. City Council uh, was able to turn that down. And we were not normally and Ed Smith knows this. Normally, we would fill the city council chambers with people and we're not able to do that now. So it's just, you know, the, the, the labor movement has oh. always adapted on the fly to, to whatever the so challenge We were able to are. do a lot of very, very innovative and successful stuff in the fight for the HEROES Act. And, and with President Biden's help, we, uh, we got total victory. Right. We won everything in the end. It was a long march. And at the height of COVID, we were able to do stuff in the streets with caravans and so forth, keeping people in their cars, that kind of thing. We're, we have a bit more flexibility now, but we also, but it's also an evolving situation, right? In terms of what's safe, and so yeah. we're, we're we're working with that. But I think we're, but I think the, the 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 line of thinking, Chris, that you and Ed have on this is is one we share. Excellent, excellent. Ed, any final thoughts before we let Damon go? Yeah, just the cautionary note. Um, the, the variants, very real and very powerful. And from our organization, we think the CDC is once again behind the curve on this. And we absolutely recommend full masking, uh, going back to full masking. And that's Ed Smith wearing his hat as uh, with the D.C. Nurses Association. And I see Damon here on Zoom is donning, is donning his AFL-CIO mask. He's being, even on Zoom, he's being extra safe. That's right. That's right. I don't know about you guys. You guys could be contagious. <laughs> Our thoughts are contagious, Damon. I think, right. the science, I think the science is there that you can't 
be contagious on Zoom, but <laughs> never, never, never too safe. Yeah, let me just say, I'm, I'm making a joke. It's a joke. <laughs> it's a joke. He is. He is. Zoom, Zoom is not contagious, but a lot, of, but other things are, and we have to be very, we have to be thoughtful. We do, yeah. Damon Zoris. Thank you so so much. Keep us posted, and wherever you need us to be, that's where we'll be. All right, brother. All right. Great to see everybody. Take care. Take care. Damon Silvers, Director of Policy, Special Counsel at the AFL-CIO, talking about the Pro-Act Week of Action. That was an excerpt from the full July 22nd episode of Your Rights at Work and was edited for time. To hear the full and unedited episode, we have a link up on the Labor Express Radio Facebook page at laborexpress.org. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only English-language labor news and current affairs radio program. The PROAC Week of Action was also the main item of discussion on the most recent episode of The Rick Smith Show. Rick talked to another AFL-CIO official, Tim Schlittner, Communications Director for the Federation, about the Week of Action. Rick also raised the important question of how the act gets passed in our current Congress. Unless it's included in the must-pass infrastructure bill that utilizes reconciliation so that only 51-vote threshold is required, it's not going to happen. Rick, who mentioned the many other times in the past 20 years that Democrats had failed to pass meaningful labor law reform, expressed concern over what he is hearing about, a watered-down version of the act being passed. A possibility that it seems to me in this conversation, Schlittner all but confirmed. You'll have to listen to yourself and see what you think, but it sounds like that might be all they think they can get out of this Congress. Like Chris Garlock in our previous segment, Rick couldn't help but reference Rocketman Bezos with several delightful shots at the oligarch. I'm here to share some thoughts on this week of action on why the PRO Act, uh, the Protect the Right, the Organize Act, is so greatly needed. I've asked Tim Schlittner to come talk with us. Tim is the communications director there at the AFL-CIO. Tim, thanks for taking time for us. Hey, Rick. Good to be with you, as always. So, uh, big week. Uh, I'm seeing events all across the country, tour buses, all kinds of stuff, uh, highlighting the fact that we, we desperately need this, uh, this, this PRO Act to get passed through. Uh, tell me wh- what you're seeing. Yeah, it's a, it's a big week in a big year for the PRO Act. There's just a groundswell out there of understanding that the labor laws we currently have do not allow workers to form unions freely and fairly. There's 60 million workers who want to join or form a union, but they're not being able to do it. They're being blocked by outdated laws, by corporate lawyers and anti-union tactics in in the workplace that are designed to scare people from exercising their right and their will. And there's just a growing recognition, both inside and outside the labor movement, in blue and in red states, that the, the right to form a union is fundamental. It'll help change the direction of our economy so it's fairer and it'll help save our democracy. So there's just a real, real excitement around the PRO Act. This week, there's going to be an event at all 100 senators' offices out in the, out in the country. So there's just a real, real uh, momentum for this bill right now. No, it's something that's absolutely needed. And look, I think, you know, the guy who was all over the news today because he shot his little rocket into the sky and came back down and uh, he, they spent $200 million dollars uh, fighting off a unionization effort in a right-to-work state, uh, where you know, they could have easily broken that down the down the road. Um, you know, the sad reality is they've got so much power, so much resource, and the labor laws are so badly broken that we we desperately need this reform. 
Yeah, he's going into space and the people that work for him are peeing in bottles because they're too afraid to take a break working for the richest man in the world and one of the most profitable companies in the world. There's just something awfully wrong with that. The election that RWDSU UFCW had in Alabama was just the perfect example of how broken our labor laws are. Amazon cheated every step of the way in that campaign. Workers weren't able to uh, freely and fairly express their voice in, in that election. We see that across industries, across states, and it's just time. It's time to get back to the original intent of the National Labor Relations Act, passed all the way back in 1935, and that is to encourage collective bargaining so people can negotiate for better wages, benefits, and working conditions. Yeah, so no, here's the thing. Um, you know, my, li my lifetime... Uh, Democrats have broken my heart time and time again. When I was a little kid, there was talk of Carter undoing Taft-Hartley. Uh, Bill Clinton swore we were going to get a uh, strike replacement. Uh, I shook Barack Obama's hand twice. He told me we're getting something better than the Employee Free Choice Act. Here we are at this moment, uh, probably further along in the process of getting something than we've had in my lifetime. What are the chances? Well, you know, Rick, I'm a Knicks fan, so I've lived with a broken heart basically all of my adult life. Those those other opportunities with Carter and Clinton and Obama, those were terribly disappointing, heartbreaking. And uh, the labor movement and our allies poured our hearts into those moments, and we came up short. This time has to be different. I think it can be different. I think this president is more committed to the labor movement and to labor law reform than any of his recent Democratic predecessors. I think the country's in a different place than it was in the late 70s, the mid 90s and 2009. I think there's a growing recognition that unionism is a solution not only for our economic challenges, but for issues like addressing climate change responsibly, saving our democracy, racial justice, voting rights, they can all be strengthened with a stronger labor movement. So I think the combination of the country and the president and with the will of the labor movement and our allies, we can get it done this time, but it's not done till it's done. Right. So until, until, the, until those points are on the board, we're not gonna stop, we're not gonna rest. A week of action will be another week of action, will be a month of action, will be a year of action. We will not rest. So one of my great fears is that it's already being watered down while we're speaking. I, you know, I just read something a little bit ago that said that they've already watered it down and they're only now going after uh, the economic penalties and a couple of other things to get past the parla Senate parliamentarian. Uh, obviously, you're closer to this than than most of us. What are you hearing? Well, the bill hasn't been changed, right? The bill that passed the House stands. It is sitting in the Senate. It has 47 co-sponsors. We're working really hard to get 50 co-sponsors. Then there's another uh, track that's moving in the Senate, the budget resolution, which is moving through something called reconciliation. It's a, it's a technical process term, but it, it's related to the budget. And I know a lot of our champions on the Hill, like Bernie Sanders and others who want the PRO Act badly, are just looking for any improvements to workers' rights that we can get into that budget resolution. That would be a positive. If we can if we can get improvements to workers' rights, penalties on corporations that union bust in, into the budget resolution this year, all the better. But that's not a substitute for the PRO Act. The PRO Act would repeal right to work. It would ban a uh, strike of replacement. It would guarantee first contract arbitration. It would completely change the scope of labor relations in America so workers have a fair chance. That only can be accomplished 
through the full PRO Act, and we're committed to passing that bill. Now, do you think the chances of getting that through reconciliation are possible? And look, there's ne there's never going to be a way, in my view, and you can disagree, that we're going to get 60 votes. We're just You're never getting 10 Republicans to come along, in my view. I don't even think you're going to get one, but that's, that's another argument. The only way I see this getting through is through the budget reconciliation process. And even then, I'm a little I'm a little concerned uh, at the likes of uh, Kelly Sinema, or I don't know, I keep, uh, Christian Sinema and and, yeah. and Joe Manchin. You're combining two of our targets, Mark Kelly and Christian Sinema into <laughs> Kelly Sinema, which exactly. I like. Uh, we are in, in, in very good dialogue with Lisa Murkowski, the Republican senator of Alaska. Congressman Don Young of Alaska, also a Republican, voted for the PRO Act. So we think she's very much in play. As far as uh, getting to 60 votes, I, I agree that it's unlikely. We're really focused on getting 50 and then pushing for the Senate to make a change to the rules. So the will of the people, the things that uh, the American people voted for in the 2020 election can go through. Yeah. If we can get any of it passed in the budget reconciliation, that's fine. But again, we need the full PRO Act. Uh, now today, the big news obviously was uh, Jeff Bezos and his brother, and a uh, an old and the the oldest person to go into space and the youngest person to go into space. And I'm not really sure on what the point was. I don't know that we did anything positive. I think it was just a rich guy going, "Hey, look what I can do with my toys." Um, my question is, do, did the Amazon workers get to watch Dear Leader go into space? Did they at least get that 10 minute break? You know, that's that's a good question. I I, I, have, I have to wonder if they did, they maybe got docked in their pay for it. But, you know, it's just the, the rich in this country, the super rich, especially and, and people like Jeff Bezos, who have used his wealth to deny working people rights on the job. This economy has been tilted toward them for so long that it's just become normal. We've become numb to it. And what we saw today, again, was just rich people doing rich things while working people are, are down on earth, moving this country, serving it, building it, and not having a proper voice in, in our economy. And that's just a shame. It's got to stop. And I think... I think we finally have the momentum and the recognition to stop it. Yeah, but you know, here's the thing. I mean, even in his in his weird little moment of candor he had today, he admitted, you know, hey, thanks to all my employees for paying for this. Well, again, yeah, I, I heard that, but you, you can say thank you by allowing your workers to form a union. That's the best thanks you can give. And that should be done down here on Earth. Yeah, I'm right there with you. But at the end of the day, you know, when you start looking at uh, our laws and this comes back to the people that we elect and the policies that they pursue, uh, we have a tax code that is heavily suited towards towards the very wealthy uh, and punishing, actually punishing people who work. Uh, and we have labor laws that have been so badly broken over the years uh, that the only tool that workers have to be able to to fight back has been basically rendered almost impossible to use. We're at this moment where something has to get done. I agree. And, and a lot of this, Rick, has happened on the Democratic Party's watch. And I think it's the, the Democratic Party has a responsibility to clean it up. Yeah. I know this president wants to do it. And uh, we really need those in his party and every like-minded Republican that supports workers to join them in doing it and doing it now. That, like the previous excerpt from the Year Rights at Work podcast, was edited for time. The full episode of The Rick Smith Show is linked up on laborexpress.org. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for Working People by Working People. 
We need to take a short station ID break and we'll return. Amazon is coming to your town and you better watch out. So stay tuned. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only English language labor news and current affairs radio program. In the first half of tonight's program about the PRO Act Week of Action, we referenced several times Bezos' vanity stunt of launching himself in his cowboy hat three miles into space for four minutes. We can't help but mark this momentous occasion with a reminder of the impact of the man and his company, Amazon, back down here on Earth. The nearly 200,000 signature strong petition on Change.org not to allow Jeff Bezos to return to Earth was not successful. So Amazon will continue to shape our work lives and the life of our communities for decades to come. One life that was shaped by Amazon, former Amazon employee Avery Bernard, has turned his experiences into a first-rate podcast entitled, rather straightforwardly, The Amazon. In a recent episode aired on July 16th, Avery discussed how Amazon uses its tremendous economic power to bring whole cities to their knees, often in vain attempts to lure the corporate behemoth. Like it or not, Amazon is coming to town, at least for most of us living in even sparsely populated areas. It doesn't take a metropolitan behemoth to attract the smiling giant to your area. Just a minor statistical advantage, and maybe a nice view for when the bigwigs show up ought to do it. There is a solid chance that most of the people listening now have, or soon will have, an Amazon facility and delivery station located somewhere close to their home. The series of rapid expansion for Amazon was something that started long ago and never really seemed to diminish. The initial reaction to a new business coming to town is usually something close to excitement for most especially if your new colonizer seems to promise high-wage jobs, along with a litany of other advantages. Every city is looking for an economic boost these days, right? Unfortunately, the bill of goods sold to the public can often be something fabricated or based on a best-case scenario type deal that the company has no liability to hold up to. Amazon, of course, is different. Not different in the way that they can back up their promises, but different in the way that most cities, and by that I mean governors, mayors, and others in charge, seem to drool at the chance of having a big, shitty building with a smile in their town because it looks good for them. As the new invited invader, Amazon typically swears by their sweet words as they strip the town blind and lower wages and working conditions. Gentrification sure is a beauty. Regardless of the risks and realities, when Amazon announced it had plans to build a new HQ2 somewhere in the Western world, there was nothing short of a free-for-all battle to get that shiny new skyscraper planted in the middle of a downtown between numerous locations. Amazon and Bezos had nearly every state begging at their feet, and all it would take is a hefty bag of tax incentives, a few cheap ploys of social demonstration, and absolutely anything the company could want. You too 
could have an Amazon coming to town to stay and to rule as they see fit. This is the Amazon, episode 10. By September of 2017, it was decided that Amazon was just too big to have only one main headquarters. They would need to stretch their legs a bit and find a new home for some of their higher-ups. About 50,000 of them once the project was all said and done. The first step of the project came in the form of a request for proposals issued out to the world with a list of demands and suggestions that Amazon would require for their new home. As you can imagine, Amazon asked a lot of their possible suitors. They wanted a stable, business-friendly environment with a community that thinks big and creatively. They also asked to be located in a major metropolitan area, one close to airports and highways. Should you be able to conjure all of that up, as well as 8 million square feet of real estate, and you too could have an HQ2 business palace in your area. Oh, and you'll need a massive bag of cash in the form of tax incentives and write-offs. In fact, one could possibly argue that's what mattered most. Regardless, there was a massive amount of interest in this project, as local governors and mayors willingly sent out cheesy videos and weird gifts to try and prove their ability to be creative to Amazon. Unfortunately, Amazon stated on Twitter, they would not be able to accept the gifts. It's kind of weird, isn't it? And it led to many strange objects being placed in museums, such as a giant cactus that now resides in a Tucson museum. A city in Georgia even offered to name a town Amazon for the promise of getting the new HQ2. So not only did they offer the coffers of its city, but the city itself. It was a strange time. Truly 2017 and 18 were a distant time thousands of years ago that is lost to us now. As bids came in, bids for whose bid would win came in online. That is to say, analysis began to guess where Amazon would go. In the later stages of the proposal, some even kept track of the flight patterns of Jeff Bezos and his higher-ups to try and determine the results. A month after the official request for proposal, there were 238 bids for the HQ2 project across the United States, Canada, and Mexico. That is pretty impressive, right? Even as a regular citizen looking to move soon, I highly doubt I could pull in 238 offers to live, much less be paid to go there. But it's fair to say that it's possible Amazon has a better credit score than I. Regardless of how cool it is to have a large part of the Western world beg for you to take their money, the list was narrowed down to 20 finalists in January of 2018. It was a quick way of getting to the point in saying the new HQ2 will not be located in the Midwest, and Indiana never really had a chance. Sorry, guys. But they had to know it. Most of the finalists were located on the East Coast, which was to be expected. Something about having your headquarters stretch from coast to coast is not just impressive, but a powerful image. Then, of course, there were some other theories of where and why Bezos would choose the location for his new headquarters. You see, after all the lavish treatment and touring of new locations, it really came down to something much more simple. Some such as New York University School of Business professor Scott Galloway suggested. The process to this point had been a ruse, and the results were predetermined. 
Quote from a Vox article. I lease space all the time for my businesses, and I always tell my real estate agent, we can lease any office in the world, as long as I can walk there from where I live. It's the Olympics on steroids. A lot of high fives and ribbon cutting, and then 10 years later, we realize it was a bad idea. In other words, by soliciting bids from lots of places where it was never really going to move, Galloway alleges that Amazon was probably able to get more tax breaks from the pre-determined winners. Unquote. That sure is an interesting theory, isn't it? And we will never get some admission from Bezos that this was all predetermined, but we can say in fact Amazon had a lot to gain from making every city they could pit against one another. Competition is supposed to be healthy, but when you're playing with taxpayer money and a fat stack of cash that could go to house the homeless or feed the underprivileged, it's pretty important to spend that money as effectively as possible. And it was a lot of money going into this. Having a finalist selected while you tour cities on state payers' dimes would be highly unethical and just kind of douchey to boot. However, it would be a good business decision. And when it comes to money and ethics, well, Amazon has a history of choosing one over the other. Regardless of the risks, Amazon had announced that they were done visiting the 20 finalists by May and would continue intense rounds of negotiations to make the deal by the end of the year. These hyper rounds of negotiations undoubtedly would end up with Amazon seeing more cash in their pockets as they bid city versus city and those who couldn't keep up simply fell by the wayside. As a side note before we move on, I think it's important to note that while many of the contract details or bids certain cities put up were not publicly released, we would, however, know what the final deal was made up of. The cities that did not get a new Amazon building still had money to burn once the deal fell out. Nearly all of that money would be reinvested into other business ventures. And the businesses that came in to claim the land that Amazon did not want knew they could ask for a fat stack of tax incentives that the city had already put aside for Amazon. They could quite even possibly base it off of the final deal that Amazon had got, knowing that those cities had probably offered something close to it. Maybe take a little off the top on the city side for their new motto, Atlanta, Georgia. Amazon kind of almost built a headquarters here. And many were happy to do so. Bringing in big business for what it's worth just looks good, especially for those that actually seem interested in voting for things other than just presidential elections. The narrow view of more jobs must be good doesn't usually work out that way. In fact, a lot of the final deal in Amazon's case was just dependent on the number of jobs and the wages of those employees. The idea being that those employees would reinvest all of their paycheck back into the city via housing and taxes and just going downtown to buy stuff. But in reality, it's hard to say that that would happen. Those employees work for Amazon. They have the biggest company store known to man, where anything can arrive to them faster than ever. No matter how much subsidizing is done, there isn't a guarantee any of it will come back to the city. By the near end of 2018, People were getting anxious to know what would happen with HQ2, and via reported leaks from the company, it was up to three locations. Dallas, Texas, 
Long Island, New York, and Arlington, Virginia seem to be the final choices. And as an interesting note, Jeff Bezos seemed to have property in every one of those states, and two of them were relatively close to the proposed locations. And on November 13th, Amazon decided, why have just one? Long Island, New York, and Arlington, Virginia would be home of the new Amazon HQ2. Rather or not, that theory of this being predetermined was correct, the outcome definitely pointed to it being a possibility. The search was now over. And truly, why not have two instead of one? It's highly unlikely, even though HQ2 would be split, that those incentives would also have to be split up. That's just not how Bezos negotiates. That's not how you bow down to Amazon. Both these cities are going to give us everything they got. The following days after the decision was made, we began to learn more about just what Amazon was going to be getting for their service to the town. About $2.2 billion in tax incentives, as well as promises to help expand the headquarters while promising future tax breaks beyond the original $2.2 billion. That would be based on performance, they say. It was an open-ended robbing of the taxpayers' money, and it didn't really seem to have an end in sight. A helipad would also be needed. And hey, New York, just so you know, we, Amazon, are going to need at least half off all these property taxes. Maybe a little more. $2.2 billion is already hard to wrap your head around, really. A billion is just a fuck ton of money. But that could go to so many other places. I won't spend all day on it, but maybe you wouldn't want your sewers backing up with polluted floods of water that shut down the subway system. But that $2.2 billion was going to turn into so, so much more so quickly. Many worried about the price tag. As the New York Times piece came out shortly after the announcement, it stated, quote, Incentives are not subsidies. They are investments. But it is not clear that they are good investments, said Jay Shambaugh, director of the Hamilton Project at the Brookings Institute. In offering incentives to Amazon, he said, New York and Virginia are effectively subsidizing a big incumbent company at the expense of local businesses and startups. That is especially concerning, he added, when entrepreneurship rates are falling and cities are struggling to make natural, homegrown businesses. That could be a particularly bitter pill for local retailers, many already struggling to compete with Amazon, said Stacy Mitchell, co-director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. If you're a local retailer, or a small manufacturer, or an artist, or writer, or publisher, you're watching as your city and state hands your tax dollars to your most ferocious antagonist, she said. Unquote. In a way, Amazon is getting much more than just the $2.2 billion instantly. They really are getting the heart of the city, or at least a large chunk of it, all while threatening to demolish surrounding businesses in two large major cities, all as the surrounding public infrastructure starts to rot due to neglect. 
in an attempt to put a face on this amount of money, so to say, just a simple Google search shows that in 2019, the Food Bank of New York City received just 18 million in government grants. So, nowhere close to what was being offered up. Of course, if I can figure that out, then people who are much smarter than me, who also run that particular part of Queens, such as Alexandria Oriacosto cortez would figure out many more ways to shred Amazon a new asshole, as they were quick to speak out. The pushback for the New York project had started. What really didn't help Amazon's case was when Politico revealed that the land Amazon intended to use was going to originally be used for some 6,000 new homes, 1,500 of which were for affordable housing units. Some might be able to call that an investment in the city and the people. But I suppose that doesn't get votes the way an Amazon building would. Between protests and political blowback, everything came to a head during a December 12th City Hall meeting, where council members were able to ask questions to Amazon executives that were sent there to tell their side of the story. Amazon is a $1 trillion company. Is that accurate? You're approximately valued at a trillion dollars? I think it's close to that, yeah. Close to that. So why should we give you this money? So these incentives, um, um, they're performance-based, which means that we will not receive any money until we create jobs and make these investments. But you're worth a trillion dollars. Why do you need our $3 billion and we have crumbling subways, crumbling public housing, people without health care, public schools that are overcrowding? Why, why, do you need, why do you need our $3 billion? This project is going to provide over $186 billion in positive economic impact to the state over the next 25 years. That includes over $14 billion in additional tax payments. That analysis was done by someone who was hired by the state of New York and not by neutral third-party academics or companies that could provide that economic analysis. The, the, what you're citing was done by people who were hired to do that on behalf of this project. It wasn't done by a neutral third party. So why do you need our, if you're worth a trillion dollars, why do you need our $3 billion? We believe this project will be a positive economic impact for the city and the state. We're here to create jobs uh, in not only our 25,000 direct jobs, but the thousands of indirect jobs that will result from this. Um, I've assume, I assume you visited Long Island City, the site? Yes. yes. Uh, did you take the 7 train to get there? I've taken the 7, the N, and I've taken multiple, and the ferry. So why do you need a helipad? <clears throat> yep. Some pretty good questions, if you ask me. Now, that $3 billion number he's throwing around comes from the fact that the city was initially offering $1.3 billion, and the state of New York has its own incentive package of about $1.7 billion. It all gets a bit complicated and murky, but... They were just offering a fuck ton of money. And in all fairness, I should note that Amazon offered to pay for the helipad. Thanks, guys. With all these questions, as well as asking why Amazon was so anti-union, the only defense Amazon could really come up with was, well, maybe, just maybe, the jobs we create might help the city. Maybe. It's likely that they would help some, but $3 billion worth, plus all the upkeep and so much more, it's hard to argue that Amazon was really giving a good value to the state of New York. 
in the city of Long Island. In the end, New York City just wasn't buying it, and for good reason. The very act of speaking up against Amazon seemed to rub them the wrong way. How dare you question us? We are here to save your city. All we need is up to nearly $3 billion over the next few years of your money. Oh, and all this space, and a couple other things. Also, we're going to do our best to keep unions away from this historically unionized city. When you get into the details, the offer just wasn't that good. On February 14th, 2019, Amazon announced it would not continue the New York project, while also stating the reasoning was not political, even though it very much was. Even Andrew Cuomo took his allegedly pierced nipples to the public to say the left had blown up this deal and criticized AOC for not understanding that the $3 billion Amazon would get would be in the form of tax breaks and subsidies, not real money, which is not a bad argument for someone who's fucking stupid like Andrew Cuomo. Ah, yes, we'll just be building them new buildings and handing over to them all the public resources we have, but the money they won't pay us doesn't really exist. Truly, it's amazing that man manages to get out of bed in the morning without hurting his head. I do have to be opinionated every now and again, and I fucking hate that guy. Gaffes and politics aside, the people of New York showed up to give their voice to oppose a company that was already showing no mercy to the workers they had in the state already. By collectively speaking out and uniting behind leaders that were willing to say, this is a ruse, they managed to avoid a drain on their public resources. Unfortunately, Virginia did not manage to get out of the way. That was just the first part of that episode of the Amazon podcast. That episode continues to detail Amazon's effect on Arlington, Virginia, and other communities. It's a podcast very much worth listening to, not just that episode, but the entire series. You can find a link to the podcast at our Facebook page at laborexpress.org. Again, that's laborexpress.org. That is all the time we have for tonight's program. Labor Express is a nonprofit 501c3 member of IBEW Local 1220. Views expressed on Labor Express are those of its producers, not necessarily those of IBEW. Labor Express is a production of the Committee for Labor Access in Chicago, the world capital of the labor movement. Labor Express is a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, working people's voices broadcasting worldwide 24 hours a day. Find out more at laborradionetwork.org. The song is our theme is called Worker Songs, written by Ed Pickford and recorded by the Dropkick Murphys. Tune in every Sunday at 8 p.m. and Monday at 11 a.m. on 105.5 FM or lumpenradio.com for more Labor Express.